Hi there, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Ken Ellingwood, the author of First to Fall Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery. He's a former correspondent with the LA Times and has reported from all over the world. This is his second book. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Ellingwood. Really happy to be with you. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We just made a donation from your contributions to Reach Out and Read, a program that makes books a part of the pediatric healthcare process. Freedom of the press isn't free. Sometimes it's deadly. For Elijah Lovejoy, abolitionist, it was deadly because those defending the ultimate system of oppression insisted that he stop calling them out for it. He died in a hail of bullets as he tried to defend his printing press. Ken writes that, if I may call you Ken, Ken writes that Lovejoy reminds us a free press is not just a clause in the Bill of Rights, but a cause that has been cultivated and defended by generations of its practitioners. Lovejoy was the first of them to fall. When and why, Ken, did you decide this story needed a modern perspective? The book has a, a, a great origin story in that I was uh, teaching journalism in China at uh, Nanjing University after a career at the LA Times. And I was appointed as a visiting fellow and was teaching a class in the history of American journalism to Chinese students when I uh, introduced them to Elijah Lovejoy as part of a section we were doing on abolitionism and journalism. Um, and I was very struck by how they really um, were captivated by his story and how much they saw him as a hero in, in their terms, really. Uh, for fighting against bigger powers and for standing up for principle. And I was so struck by their reaction to him that I started thinking to myself, gee, may, I wonder if there's more here to be said or if there's something that could be said in a different way than it has been. And I started digging into Lovejoy's life and his story during my uh, summers back in the United States. Um, I would go to libraries and archives and really started to learn about Lovejoy and realize that there's a really a great story to be told in a modern way with a modern context um, sort of assumed. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't try to hit that very hard in the book, but I think some of these themes really cry out. And, um, and so I, I, um, I pursued it and I wrote the book. Let's have you give some background on who I would consider to be the reporter's reporter, Elijah, Lovedo <laughs> Elijah Lovejoy. He's born in 1802 in Maine to parents who were uneducated, at least academically speaking. Um, what was in Maine? And I want you to include some religion in this answer because it certainly helped shape Elijah Lovejoy. Um, what were his parents like? So often we see great people in history come from these kinds of beginnings. Yeah, it's 1802. Maine was, was very sparsely settled. It was still part of the state of Massachusetts at the time. And um, his uh, family lived on a, a piece of land in central Maine in a town uh, called Albion. 
and um, they were farmers, just uh, you know, family farmers, and uh, and all very religious in their in their orientation. Um, his father was a Congregationalist minister, and Congregationalist churches were pretty much everywhere up in New England at that time. Uh, his mother was not formally educated in religion, but she was very devout, and she came from a, her, a, a religious family herself, and was very, very learned in, you know, in topics of religion. So Elijah and his brothers and sisters grew up in a context where religion was kind of all around them, and and that's not that unusual. Um, that, uh, religion was a very important part of the lives of, of most early Americans. Uh, many people you know, owned only one book in the home and that was the Bible. So it wasn't unusual for him to be you know, soaked in with religion, but he, he, um, he had a very uh, defined you know, moral sense of right and wrong from that from that environment, and he would act upon that. You know, later in his life, he was um, very certain of what was the right thing and what was the wrong thing. He was, as a child, really smart <laughs> and uh, really quite a talented writer. He uh, went on to um, Waterville College, which is now Colby College, and graduated at the top of his class. He wrote poetry and and really thought at some point he might try to make a living with his words. And he did. Maine was not a state yet, um, as you mentioned, but it does become a free state and it becomes a signature, I guess, free state, if you, if you want to put it that way, because it is ultimately traded as part of the Missouri Compromise. Um, when Missouri enters the Union um, as a slave state, which is also interesting because Elijah Lovejoy winds up there, but right. Maine is, um, becomes the free state. So where can we start to find his anti-slavery views? And were those views grounded in the sentiment in Maine? Maine was certainly a place where, where there was uh, anti-slavery sentiment when, when, um, when it began to you know, show itself in an organized fashion in the say late 1820s and 1830s. Really for, for, for Elijah Lovejoy, I think we have to see the beginnings of it all in that, in that moral training that I talked about before. There was really no hint of, of any kind of activism in his early life. And he didn't particularly uh, show much interest, uh, even as an adult, in the slavery issue uh, until after he had moved to St. Louis, until after he had become the editor of a newspaper. And after he had received religious training as a minister in the Presbyterian church. At that point, and now we're talking uh, in the early 1830s, uh, Lovejoy is, you know, a little, he's just entered his, his 30s. And he begins to pay attention in a way he hasn't before to the issue of slavery. And I'm, we can talk a little bit more about that uh, later, but, but um, from his early you know, childhood and growing up, I, I can find a very strong you know, moral uh, core that would prove to be the motor for his later activism. One of the things you say in the book is that America, as he is, and I guess America is always changing, but America is really changing as he starts to grow up. Transportation gets easier. 
there's more awareness that we can travel from one place to another and live somewhere. Why not? I'll go to Missouri. Uh, explain how he winds up going to St. Louis and then where St. Louis is in the early 1930s in the context of America and its argument over slavery. Lovejoy is a pretty restless soul for a man who grew up in, in, a, in such a little tiny burg. <laughs> he, he has this yearning to go somewhere else. And he doesn't quite know to do what exactly, except that he has uh, a belief that there is some way to serve God in this. Now, he's not yet a minister or anything like that, but he speaks with people, his, his elders and, and, and at, at the college too, who are all men of God, religious people. And the message that comes through is that the, the West is where the action is. The, we call it now, you know, that's the Midwest, of course. But at that time, Missouri, St. Louis was the far West. And so um, Lovejoy kind of buys into this idea that the, the, the fight for the, the moral well-being of the United States will be fought in the West. This is a notion that had been nurtured by uh, Lyman Beecher and some other uh, religious leaders who believed that um, that was going to be the front, you know, sort of good versus evil, and where the, where the, where the moral um, bearing of America would be, would be decided. He walks uh, on foot across much of New England as part of this journey to the West, and ends up in um, St. Louis, where he, uh, after a short amount of time running a school, he ends up as an editor of a secular newspaper uh, called the St. Louis Times. And it's a conventional newspaper of the time, a very partisan, tied to the Whigs uh, philosophy. And as I mentioned before, he still hadn't shown a lot of interest yet in the slavery um, issue, but it was there all around him because Missouri was a slave state. And St. Louis was an embarkation point for uh, slave traders uh, transporting slaves to the South. This is a major aside, but can you imagine walking across New England without the advantage of modern shoes and sneakers? Oh, it's tremendous. And he, you know, he writes about how hard it is. I mean, it, he runs out of money. He's got to hawk a watch. He's staying in these taverns that he, you can tell this kid from this little podunk town who's never seen anything. is kind of horrified at <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, there were ladies there. Right, <laughs> I mean, right, right. He's, right, he's right. really quite taken, but it's, it, was, it was really quite arduous. The funny thing is, I mean, people did this sort of thing in that era. They walked, uh, you know, in the, in the early 1800s. And yet at the same time, it was the, it was the moment of, of a great transportation revolution. And he also took advantage of that. I mean, the Erie Canal, you know, was, was built in the 1820s. There, he, he rode, um, uh, as part of his journey west, he, he rode on the Erie Canal. And so he took advantage of both, kind of both sides of it. He, he, was, he was traveling the old-fashioned way on foot, but he was also enjoying the, the, the fruits of this, of this really exciting revolution, both in, in transportation and mobility. You know, Americans were on the move in the 1820s and the 1830s. And it's really this remarkable period that I think often gets just overlooked. It was very exciting, um, and he's you know, and he's part of it. I would certainly suggest anybody walking across that part of the country do that in summer as opposed to winter. Uh, 
Was it summer or winter? Do you remember? <laughs> it was late. It was late spring. All right. He was that's a good time about, to do it. Yeah. That's <laughs> it a good time. It was already hot too. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, wh- uh, where and how did he develop this idea that an American can say what they want? As you explain in the book, we take it for granted now. And as a matter of fact, there was a fascinating ruling today from the Supreme Court that said even a high school student can go on a, a, a curse-laden tirade and have that speech protected because Justice Breyer, I think it was, wrote, sometimes you have to protect the superfluous in order to protect the necessary. Um, but that is not the way it was back then in the 1820s. We take it for granted now. State by state, though, there had all, there, uh, things were state by state back then. There had not been these legal precedents set. He draws on the founding documents for this idea that an American can say what they want, right? Yeah, he does. And, and, and you have to go back to this era to kind of see what, how courageous he was to hold this belief that, you know, we can print anything we want. I have the right to do this, no matter what anybody says. And um, it, was a, it was really a gray area, right? It was the First Amendment is written, you know, in the, as part of the Constitution. And, you know, according to that, the Congress has, you know, can't pass any laws to, um, you know, abridge uh, the freedom of the press. But there had been no evidence, really, no court rulings or, or really or any cases to, to back that up to show, well, when the rubber meets the road, yeah, journalists really have this right. So he was in this, he was in this, in this fog, um, and yet, uh, legally speaking, that is, but, and yet he and, and many other editors at the time believed that they were free to write what they wanted to. And if you read the newspapers of the time, including the, the secular paper that he started with in St. Louis, they really go at it with each other. You would say, this is a free country. These people are expressing opinions. In fact, oftentimes that's all they express. There's not a whole lot of reporting in a lot of these newspapers. They're very partisan and they call each other names, one editor to another, and they have these great you know, debates across from one week to the next across the pages of their newspapers. And what you realize is that Americans at the time believed that they had freedom of the press. And in Lovejoy's case, his belief was really enough. He, because he believed he had uh, freedom to publish what he wanted to, he did publish what he wanted to. Could he say, point to a court ruling to say, well, see, it says right here that I, that I can say this or do this. No, he just, he just believed it. And, and that was enough. Describe the newspaper industry for us a little bit in the 19, in, sorry, in the 1820s and 30s. Uh, what was it like back then? How were papers shipped around? Where did papers come from? How many were there? And why did people love reading newspapers? Americans were newspaper junkies. Since the colonial times, they were readers of newspapers. Um, newspapers played a role in the cause for independence. And after independence in the young country, news, uh, newspapers were already you know, part of the American DNA. Foreigners who came to the United States were really taken by this. You know, they noticed how, how addicted to newspapers Americans were, how many newspapers there were, and just how important newspapers were in organizing society. Um, uh, writers like uh, you know Alexis Tocqueville noted you know the 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 important um, sort of adhesive function of newspapers in the society and other writers noticed that even in the smallest town uh, there was a newspaper so Americans were really were really uh, fans of newspapers and they 
um, newspapers expanded uh, greatly during the early decades of, of, of independence, after independence of the country's uh, you know, life. And it, by the 1830s, um, it, they really started to, to flower. One of the things that helped bind Americans, you could say, is the industry of, of journalism. It, it bound the country, which was growing rapidly. I mentioned earlier, there was a very mobile time. People are moving all over. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of migration from east to west. So how do you hold this place together? Well, one of the agents that held the country together was the newspaper. And uh, they traded newspapers. Uh, newspapers would have exchanges with others. So the way it worked was a newspaper editor in St. Louis might subscribe to a bunch of newspapers back east. Those newspapers were placed in bags um, of mail, and the um, U.S. government, through the mail system, would ship them around at a very cheap rate. A lot of, you know, during the time, you know, Lovejoy was an editor, most of the mail, the, if you took a bag of mail or a shipment of mail, most of the weight was actually newspapers. That's mostly what was moving around. So newspapers in one place could learn about what was happening in another place. Then they'd reprint those stories and they trade their newspapers back east with the, with the other. And so it, it created a kind of an exchange that led, left Americans able to see what was going on in their various states. And it left newspapers as a very important part of American life. One thing we have to get familiar with here as we move on with this episode and we uh, bring our discussion further into Elijah Lovejoy and the conflicts that he was involved in is the printing press itself because he quite literally dies defending the physical printing press. Um, How did printing presses work? Uh, What were they made from? How much did they weigh? How much did they cost? What do we know about the 1820s and how they actually physically put the the ink onto the paper. Yeah, well, the, you know, in the 1820s and 1830s, particularly the 1830s, printing presses really evolved uh, quite dramatically, and so the what the the, the simple version uh, evolved into a into a much more sophisticated version as mass printing took o- took over in the in, by the by the middle of the 1830s. Lovejoy's press was rather a simple affair. It's got a wooden frame with this iron. Uh, 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 kind of a headboard, if you will. It's got this uh, lever apparatus that uh, lowers this big, heavy uh, iron piece down onto uh, a plate where, and you've got the letters, the, 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 the letters that make up the type are placed there, ink is brushed on, and the paper is literally you know, pressed between weight and, and letters. And so you, you make an impression that way. Um, it's a one person operation. And Lovejoy worked mostly alone. He had a couple of helpers, um, but this is a before mechanization. The the, the most sophisticated piece of of, of you know uh, machinery on his press was a lever um, that you pull down to <laughs> to actually lower this this weight. Um, it's a it's a simple it's a simple apparatus, but you know the the the, uh, the the cost of setting up a newspaper office in those days you know could run you know maybe fifteen hundred dollars to to um, to have everything, the press itself didn't cost that much, but all of the um, the rest of what you'd need to run a newspaper, and you know, and Lovejoy would end up going through rather a bunch of these things. He because he was attacked multiple times, uh, or his newspapers were, uh, he lost several 
printing presses to, to mobs, um, to attackers. Um, and we're going to get into those attacks, but I have one more question about these printing presses. So mm-hmm. did you have to arrange every single letter in the right formation in order to do each page each time? Yeah, it was time consuming and pretty tedious work, but yes. <laughs> Better him than me. Uh, <laughs> all right. I, although I might, it might be the one thing that could get me to shut my mouth a little bit, right? And conserve my words a little better. Um, what is the difference? Um, uh, and let's get into the anti-slavery and the pro-slavery arguments here. Um, and some of the contours of this discussion that he was, he found himself in and that he injected himself into. What was the difference in being called uh, and just being against slavery or being called an abolitionist. You didn't want to be labeled an abolitionist if you wanted peaceful nights of sleep. Um, and I wonder, is it sort of like being called the socialist today? That's kind of a pejorative term that is used. Um, totally, of course, different meanings. I'm not equating one or the other. I'm just asking about the rhetorical um, technique used here. Again, the difference between just being against slavery and being called an abolitionist. Yeah, if you, you know, in our, in our times, we, we, we think of abolitionists as, as a good thing, right? Because they were people who stood up <clears throat> against this terrible institution. But in Lovejoy's time, to be an abolitionist was to be a radical, not just a radical, but perhaps, you know, crazy. Uh, it, abolitionists were often labeled as people who uh, didn't care about the union. They didn't care about whether the country fell apart or flew apart, you know, into its, into its, different, um, into its different sections. So um, at, the, at Lovejoy's time, and I'm talking about the 1830s, to be called an abolitionist was almost fighting words. You know, they, this was a dangerous characterization, and he avoided it. Um, there were many people... And he would be among them at the beginning of his fight. He evolved. And, but at the beginning of his fight, he would be in a gradualist camp, we would say. He was against slavery, as many people were. Uh, even people, who, you could say in the South, were, were, would say they were against slavery. They thought it was, a, it was a, a bad institution and that it would at some point wither away. In the North, there were many people who uh, took the position that the answer to the problem of slavery was a was a, a, a program they called colonization. This is a this is a strategy that sought to kind of solve the the nation's race problem by deporting um, blacks freed from slavery to Africa. And there was a colony set up there, which is the, you know where Liberia is today. Um, and Lovejoy was part of that initially. So this is the most accommodationist kind of position you could take. It's, it's to say, yeah, I'm against slavery, but we're not ready to emancipate all of these slaves, two and a half million slaves at this time. We're not ready to emancipate all of these people from their bondage because, you know, all hell could break. And in the North, we have to remind ourselves there was a very, very um, um, rampant, um, you know, racist belief that um, that blacks were inferior, that blacks could not uh, handle that kind of independence, and so there were many fearful people in the North. We must remember um, who were, you know, uh, against slavery, but not willing to go to the to the to the length of being an abolitionist 
And those people believe that uh, slave, people who are in slavery should be freed and they should be freed as soon as we can do it. And Lovejoy would eventually become one of them. How does he start to marry newspaper publishing and his abolitionist or let's end slavery stances? Yeah, this is really the, the heart of the, of the book and the heart of his story. Um, he marries these two parts of himself. He's a Presbyterian preacher and he's a newspaper editor. And he's actually, he was a newspaper editor before he was a preacher. So he takes these two roles and he, and he blends them into one. He becomes the editor of a religious newspaper called uh, The Observer, first in St. Louis. And then, as we'll learn, he is chased out of there and goes across the river to Illinois. And in the newspaper, he begins to address slavery very tentatively, very cautiously at first. He doesn't uh, demand em emancipation. He, he's most concerned at the time from a religious perspective that um, the owners of slaves, those who hold people in bondage, are attending to the spiritual need of the, of, of the enslaved people that they hold. That is that they're allowing religious instruction that they're letting the, or taking them to church on Sundays. This is about as far as Lovejoy wants to go at first in his newspaper. But as he writes about slavery, and as he sees in his environment there in St. Louis, the slavery industry, the trafficking, the traders, he becomes more and more outspoken. And as the um, reaction against that steps up, he becomes even more uh, ambitious, more radicalized, you could say. So he he ends up in this role as both a, a newspaper editor and a preacher, becoming um, really radicalized um, through the process of of the opposition that that comes at him. Who else was speaking out against slavery? Some of the names we know. Uh, what were they saying, and where did he fit into the national discussion? He was a bit player, you could say, in the abolitionist cause. People knew who he was, but he was, he was no national leader. He was, for one thing, he was out on the fringes of the country geographically. The abolitionist movement was largely centered in the, in the East, in New York and Boston. So you had people like William Lloyd Garrison, who was a very outspoken uh, abolitionist who had a newspaper um, run out of in, that he ran out of Boston called the Liberator. And Garrison was, by Lovejoy's standards, too radical. He was too outspoken. His demands for immediate emancipation and uh, a brand of, of, of abolitionism that actually sought civil rights, equal rights for freed uh, blacks. This was, this was to many people really, you know, really out there. Um, but Garrison was at the, was at the front of a, of a very important, you know, movement um, in the anti-slavery in, in anti cause. To, to Lovejoy's perspective, at least at first, you know, Garrison was way too far over to the edge. Lovejoy, as he went along, and this is what I found fascinating about researching, you know, his life is, I, I love it when people change. I love to see an evolution. You, you, you don't want to have a, a static hero, right? He was, he was really quite flawed I, I, in my eyes at the beginning and uh, too, you know, too cautious. And, and you, you kind of wonder, why aren't you speaking out more? And then as he goes, you know, 
uh, along, he, he changes and he begins to sound a lot more like the people who he had castigated earlier for being too radical. What was he up against in Missouri? Um, if you go to Missouri now, there is a very prominent exhibit about the, uh, I guess it's the Fugitive Slave Act um, and uh, the um, right next to the Golden Arch or the Golden Arches, that's McDonald's, right next to the, <laughs> the arch. <laughs> that's a funny mistake, <laughs> right next to the, to the, uh, to the arch, the St. Louis Arch, there's yeah. the courthouse where, um, where a very important um, uh, slavery case was decided and you can go in and walk through and learn about that. Um, Missouri has a history um, and was at that point a slave state and he's up against um, there's a, a gag rule in the state of Missouri where you can't even publish about slavery. This was a really hostile environment for him to be publishing against slavery in. One of the things that I just love about the Lovejoy story and that really impresses me about him is that, you know, it's all well and good to, to, to uh, criticize slavery, uh, you know, sling arrows from the, you know, cozy confines of a northeastern city where, you know, not much bad is going to happen to you. Lovejoy was doing it from exactly within a place that has, that had people who were involved in this, in the, in the trade of slaves, in the, um, uh, in the, in the institution of slavery. The, the, the Missouri had uh, had slavery itself. So um, people were enslaved inside Missouri. It was also, St. Louis was also, as its you know, position on the Mississippi would have it, um, an important um, trading point. So what Lovejoy was doing by even broaching uh, the topic of slavery was he was, you know, he was poking the bear. He was uh, telling his neighbors, his, the elites of the city that that what there was something morally wrong about what they were doing. And probably as much to the point, he was threatening in their eyes, he was threatening the commercial viability of St. Louis by um, threatening to poison its relationship with Southern states with which they did a lot of trading, um, both in goods and in, and in people. And so how many people in Missouri are looking at this going, you know, listen, I understand part of what he's saying. Slavery is not great. And I don't like seeing people, human beings being carried around in shackles and sold and families broken up and all the rest of it. I don't like that. But I also, I'm not thrilled with the idea of spoiling the economy. Yeah, I think the, 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 the point about the economy is just so critical here. And it, and it goes kind of beyond the economy. You could call it the the social order yeah. that people thought he was really upsetting the whole, the whole game um, that by, you know, by questioning slavery at something as central as, as, as slavery, he was, you know, he was threatening the, the economic viability, but he was also, um, you know, threatening the calm of a, of a city. And in these, in those days, people took it upon themselves to, um, enforce the order. You know, there were no real police forces to speak of. Um, it was really kind of a, a the Wild West situation. There was um, really, uh, uh, there would be organized a town, you know, city meetings, community meetings, to try to persuade Lovejoy to knock it off, to stop publishing about slavery. And he just insisted that it was his right, and he could do so. 
and that what he was doing was protected by um, the Constitution and by God in his, in his words. So he saw his um, role as being completely covered. He was completely protected and, um, and he wasn't moved by this idea that you're, you're, you know, you're threatening to upset the apple cart here. One thing I want to get into here is the threat of the violence. Um, I have published many, many things that people haven't liked, including powerful people. Uh, I'm a, my day job is as a TV news reporter. Um, I have published things people don't like, um, whether it be a criminal or maybe someone did something wrong and the police are after them or um, there's just a dispute and people may not have agreed with my characterizations. Maybe a powerful person called me the next day and said, hey, I didn't like the way you wrote that, or maybe we should um, have a meeting to discuss why I said what I said. Um, maybe only one time, and I'm having even trouble remembering exactly what it was, maybe only one time has someone maybe gone too far in, I don't want to use the word threat, but in basically saying you better not write something like that again. Um, this is something that he dealt with, Elijah Lovejoy dealt with, the threat of the violence numerous times, several times. At what point does he start to realize and how and why that people may not just write a letter to the editor and might, say, <laughs> might do something worse? Well, he can recognize that there's really nobody to appeal to. He, he you know, writes uh, about his, his right to publish, but knows full well that the, 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 the elites, the, the, the powers that be in St. Louis are not really going to protect him. Quite to the contrary. Um, he uh, gets into a running uh, dispute with a judge there, um, after a case of a uh, the lynching of a of a of a free uh, biracial man, and Lovejoy in the newspaper expresses horror over this episode, and the judge, um, who's in charge of instructing the grand jury, uh, finds that there's no crime that can be pr prosecuted here because it was a whole big crowd that took part in this lynching, so. Who would you public? Who would, pardon me? Who would you punish for this? Well, Lovejoy finds this ridiculous uh, legal reasoning, and he writes this long screed about um, this judge and uh, this and his terrible reasoning. And by that point, and it is, is we're talking about 1836 here. By that point, Lovejoy's already received threats. Uh, the judge has held him up, Lovejoy up, and his newspaper um, held literally a copy of the of the St. Louis Observer in his hand in the courtroom and said, you know, this is the kind of stuff, this is the kind of writing, these are the kind of crazy people who are going to incite uh, rebellion among the slaves of Missouri. So by this point, Lovejoy knows that there's really no tenable way he can stay in, in St. Louis. And he decides to go across the river to Illinois, which is a free state and where he imagines that he probably um, will be a little more welcomed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any problem there. So uh, it's quite a dramatic exit. He publishes a letter or I guess he publishes an article and says, I'm leaving, I'm going to Illinois. And he tries to, as best I understand it, uh, hide his printing press on the Illinois side, and the Illinois side was not exactly safe from the Missouri side, or at least yeah. the ideas of the Missouri side. 
Yeah. So on his day, on, on the day that he's leaving, you know, his, his, new, his office gets trashed, his belongings get thrown into the river. He, he manages to get the press out of there and, and get it across the river, spirits it over to the, to the Illinois side, to the, to the city of Alton, where, you know, it sits there on the, on the dock waiting for him to pick it up. And, uh, and a mob comes over across the river and trashes it there. So he arrives in this new state, in a new city, where he presumably is going to be safe to publish uh, what he wants to publish. And his introduction to the place is that his printing press has been demolished and he has to start all over again. The 1830s in Illinois, um, there happens to be another, um, I guess at this point he's maybe I guess a little younger than Elijah Lovejoy is, but Abraham Lincoln, um, I guess is born in 1809. So 27 Mm -hmm. or so 28 years old, he's Mm -hmm. a little bit younger, but he's being nurtured in the same environment now that Elijah Lovejoy is in, which is free state, Illinois. Um, Just as an aside, what do we know about how Abraham Lincoln was observing this fight between um, pro-slavery forces and a, a press that was dedicated at least to changing or ending slavery? Well, we, we know that he was paying some attention because when the story is, you know, finally uh, ended and uh, Lovejoy is, uh, is killed by a mob in, in Alton, Illinois, um, Lincoln, uh, you know, in a, in a speech um, refers to this, um, this event and, and, and laments the, you know, killing of an editor and then throwing presses into the river and this sort of thing. So it was, you know, it was something that he obviously had been paying some attention to. I don't find any evidence that um, Lovejoy had any contact with Lincoln, you know, in that, during those years or that Lincoln, you know, in any way, you know, sought to reach out to, to Lovejoy. Um, in those days, um, it was, uh, I- including in, in, in Illinois, as well as in St. Louis, um, the prevalence of mobs was- uh, I was gonna get um, to that, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, for us in you know, 2021, looking back, um, it's, it's a little hard to, to picture, but the 1830s, the very period Lovejoy inhabited here, was the period um, with the most mob violence of any period in American history. There were all kinds of reasons for mob violence in all kinds of parts of the country. There, some of it was interethnic, some of it was just sort of like gang violence, some of it was aimed at you know immigrants, some of it was religious based, it was aimed against Catholics. In the case of um, where Lovejoy was, um, mobs were you know were after him because of um, his abolitionist views. And in the period of time that Lovejoy is going through these trials across the North. The, the largest number of mob attacks, of mob violence, uh, was directed against uh, anti-slavery activists. They were the, they were the biggest target of, of, of violent mobs. There, as I said before, there were, there were really no police around. There, were, there was hardly any um, institutional break you know, against this kind of violence. They just, uh, they were rampant. And how, can we connect the desperation, the economic desperation that was in these areas and across the country to this idea of mob violence? It preceded, the mob violence preceded the real big 
economic downturn of 1837. But I don't think that there's any way you can, you can, you can ignore the fact that by the time, you know, things are really coming to a head um, involving Lovejoy and his continuing clashes with those people who want him to stop publishing about slavery, even in Illinois, the economic uh, pain that people were feeling during what was called the Panic of 1837. It was like an, it was an early depression uh, across the country, and there was had been wild uh, speculation and too much money being printed and uh, land values collapsed, and it was a it was a giant bubble that 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 collapsed, um, and it and it, and it hit. Um, it hit the area where Lovejoy lived really hard too. So I, I think that there was probably um, a good bit of frustration over having this person in their midst criticizing them and talking about slavery. And he even drew a link between the hard times, as they were called, and, and, and slavery by saying, greed is what got us here. This is a, this is a bubble. And that's what got us into this mess. And what, what caused this bubble? The same kind of greed that leads us, some people, to enslave other human beings. So he drew this link between slavery um, and greed. And at a time when people probably would have loved to have heard a very soothing message from a pastor who also happened to run the newspaper, he had nothing but, you know, really a finger to wag at them. Let's go through um, November 6th, 1837. It's a hard day. It, uh, perhaps um, maybe we don't need a, a whole holiday for it, but, but maybe there should be more press around what happened on this day, November 6th, 1837. Um, it's four days after he makes a really incredible and beautiful pronouncement of press freedom, um, and the mob comes after him. I guess take us through what he said first and then take us through this dramatic and frankly awful day in American history. Yeah, for, for, um, for Lovejoy, uh, the, the, um, the, the days of last days of October and early November uh, really mark the, you know, the, the height of his, of his battle for the press and for speech and for um, you know, American liberty. He had been attacked repeatedly um, by this point, three different printing presses had been destroyed on different occasions. The house where his wife's family lived and where he was staying was stormed by a mob while he was there. They literally were having to fight these armed men away in, inside their house. They stormed the house. Um, he was uh, uh, stalked and threatened on a, on a roadside. Um, he was... In other words, uh, he felt like a hunted man. And the powers that be in Alton, Illinois, uh, who were trying to get him to stop, held a number of community meetings, trying to persuade him, lay off. Just have your newspaper, but don't talk about slavery. Uh, and he continued to, um, to resist that. A few days before his death, he delivered a really beautiful speech in which he compared himself to a to a partridge on the mountain, being hunted by these, by these, uh, by these people who, um, you know, wanted to do him in, and and that nobody had come to his assistance, that no authority had ever come forward, but that 
this wasn't his problem. This was, this was their problem. He had the right to publish. So it was very clear uh, by this point that if he continued, this was not going to end well. And he decided to get a fourth press. Um, the press was delivered kind of secretly. Uh, they had a whole kind of, um, you know, cloak and dagger operation to ship the press to the port, to the, to the dock there in Alton. His friends um, spirited the press into the, into the warehouse where a friend of his um, uh, had volunteered to, uh, to let him store the, the press. Lovejoy had, had some really good friends there. And one of them was the owner of this warehouse. Word got out that, um, uh, you know, Lovejoy and some friends had gathered in this warehouse where the, where the press was. And soon from the, the taverns and the watering holes of Alton, a mob assembled and they marched on over to the warehouse and started demanding through the you know, windows, give us the press, give us the press. We, you know, we will take it at the risk of our lives. Inside, uh, Lovejoy's friends were armed <laughs> and uh, waiting uh, you know, to see what would happen, hoping that, um, that uh, you know, cooler heads would prevail. As it turned out, cooler heads you know, did not prevail. Um, the, 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 the crowd got more aggressive, uh, stones were thrown, shots were fired, then shots are fired from inside the warehouse out, and the whole thing becomes this really chaotic scene of a, of a riot, really. Um, there's a, a man in the, in the crowd outside who's been wounded, and the uh, uh, crowd has decided to try to um, uh, set fire to the warehouse, to try to, you know, smoke them out, get them out of this, get them out of the warehouse and, and, and get the press. That people put a, a ladder up against the, the warehouse to try to set fire to the roof and do so. So inside, here's this scene where, you know, Lovejoy and his closest friends who've been through thick and thin, through a lot of, a lot of trials, uh, now literally um, in, in besieged. They're imprisoned. They're, 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 the warehouse that they're in is on fire. And um, the, uh, the only way out of the warehouse was a doorway on the ground floor that um, um, was under the um, you know, view of some of the gunmen outside. They took positions outside the door and they were you know, ready to shoot whoever came out of the building. Um, Lovejoy and a couple of his friends with guns came out of the building in order to try to see if they could you know, get the person who was you know, uh, lighting fire to the building. And uh, Lovejoy was immediately hit in a hail of bullets. And uh, he ran back into the building and was able to get upstairs, but he died right there in the building with his beloved printing press. He did. The building was, um, was, was, was stormed as soon as, you know, after Lovejoy died inside the building. Um, he, he, he was able to say, you know, I am shot uh, and, uh, and died. And at that point, those inside the building decided to, to flee they were promised, you know, they would be able to leave safely. Um, though when they left the building, they were fired upon. And the mob found the printing press up on the top floor and threw it down onto the onto the onto the ground level, and then took it down to the dock and smashed it to pieces and threw it as they had on other occasions with other presses into the Mississippi River. Um, and that was the end of the um, Alton Observer, as run by Elijah Lovejoy. 
Why does safeguarding the unjustifiable breed lawlessness? I think in this case, it was, um, it was a matter of, of preserving uh, some sense of order. I think that um, what he was doing, what he was saying was just so um, beyond the pale for the community around him. And that is not to say that everybody was against him, hardly. Uh, he had a number of religious uh, allies who were his, um, his friends through, through the worst of it. But to many people in the community, he was a troublemaker. And what he was saying just didn't need to be said. And I think this is where you know, Lovejoy's role um, in our history is just so important. You know, abolitionism or the anti-slavery cause, well, how, you know, however we want to define each of those terms, is really the first challenge or the first test of the First Amendment in this country. There really hadn't been uh, any, any, any cause or, or event that, you know, really put the, t put the, put the First Amendment to the test in the way that, that abolitionism did. So he was, he was out there in front um, testing to see if, if the freedoms that uh, the founders had written down actually work. And that was just, you know, too much for people at the time. Did he ever intend to become a martyr at 34? Would he have looked back and said that was worth it? You know, he had a wife and a, and a little kid. She was pregnant at the time as well when he was killed. So as a family person, he was really well aware of his situation. You know, he had this, he had this young wife. She was terrified so much of the time. She had been traumatized by these attacks. Uh, during the last week or, or, or so, I mean, she was, you know, she was, you know, sheltering in, in, in bed, basically. She was so, you know, overwrought by all of the pressure that was coming down. So in that sense, I, I don't know if he, if he would have um, wanted to put her through that kind of pain that, that he ultimately did. But on the other hand, if you, read his, if you read his words, there's no mistaking that this, this man was, was determined to um, take it as far as it needed to go. Uh, he had said earlier, I may die here, and so be it. You know, if that's what if that's what this duty requires, then um, that's what I must do. And so, you know, in you go that takes us back to his early origins, right? In in Maine, in this religious in this religious home, um, the kind of moral certainties in which he grew up, he, I believe, um, was from a you know from a moral and religious point of view, he was quite ready to be a martyr. Two important people, well, many important people, but two people whose names we know today react to this death. Um, we mentioned Abraham Lincoln's reaction. Tell us about John Quincy Adams, the old anti-slavery stalwart <laughs> and how he reacted to this. Yeah, John, well, John Quincy Adams, of course, had been the president of the United States and then, and then not, and then he was a congressman from Massachusetts. And during this period, you know, when Lovejoy is, is is publishing. Um, John Quincy Adams is, is fighting his own war in Washington to um, counter an effort by pro-slavery politicians in the Congress to prevent any discussion of slavery in the House of Representatives. 
it's, well, it's quite a surprise, or it was to me, um, as a journalist and not a historian of this period, when I did the research for this book, to discover that not only in the case of Lovejoy and the mobs that attack anti-slavery um, activists, but there were many efforts across American society to stanch any discussion of slavery, to stop it, and including the House of Representatives, which passed a gag rule that lasted for eight years, and 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 Adams was one of the was one of the great irritants of the of the pro-slavery camp because he kept trying to he kept finding ways to bring slavery into the discussion in the House and frustrating their efforts to keep it out. Anyway, after after Lovejoy is killed, um, Adams describes this as a as a you know as an earthquake uh, that would be felt across the land that. This is a monumental event. And in some ways, he was, he was exaggerating. Um, Lovejoy died, yes, and the, the country didn't, didn't, didn't uh, you know, erupt in, 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 uh, in an earthquake or a volcano or anything like that. But it did have an effect in the North um, to really infuriate people. And a lot of the North was just outraged, horrified at the idea that a newspaper editor would be killed uh, in this way. And it reminded Northerners that, um, you know, their civil rights, white uh, uh, Northerners, that their civil rights were threatened by the, by the you know, so-called slave power. And it, and it, meant, it led, led many of them to, to, to take a fonder view of, of abolitionism and, and, and even to join the movement themselves. You wrote a beautiful introduction. Um, one of the things in the introduction is the point that you make is even little pokes against press freedom can impact the larger press freedom that we enjoy today in the United States. What do you want to say about what this story and how this story reflects on our need to keep the First Amendment sacred to everybody, but especially the press? Yeah, I want to say, and as a as a as I know you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, and we, we kind of get this already. But you know, to everyone else, I want I wanted I hope that a message that comes through in the book is that this didn't this didn't just come out uh, when I say this uh, press freedom uh, didn't come out you know fully baked, and and there it was. And one of the one of the lessons that I try to impart to my Chinese students who live in a climate, of course, where the press is, you know, is, 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 uh, is censored heavily where there's not a lot of freedom of expression. One of the messages I wanted to impart was, you know, don't look at us and think we just got handed this. We were born with a silver spoon. We had to actually go out and fight for these rights to expand these rights. And we can see the course of this fight over, you know, across Supreme Court cases across the 20th century and where the press, you know, has gotten, has gotten greater rights. But in, you know, it was also fought by people. And Lovejoy is a name, he's a human being, he's a person who had the, the courage all by himself out there. And you, know, you and I as journalists know that journalism takes a lot of courage sometimes in different settings, but this guy was doing it by himself and, um, and showed so much integrity, I thought. And I, and, I, and I think that if people can appreciate the sacrifices that have been made, it will, it will remind them that uh, they can all, those, those rights can also be squandered and lost. What should we do to keep the story of Elijah Lovejoy 
alive today, along with reading your book. <laughs> That's number <laughs> yeah. one. That's the number book one. is number one. Absolutely. That's number one. I, I mean, I think that I think that we have to pay attention to this to the situation around us. Look at today. Uh, we had a mob insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in January, and if you can, if you watch the course of that crowd as they made their way, you know, to the Capitol, the first target before they got to the Capitol was the press. They rampaged there. They attacked um, uh, equipment of you know cameras and recording equipment of journalists who were there to cover the events. There were people with T-shirts with a logo, you know. Of, of murder the media. And when you can go and, and see, uh, you know, uh, this, this uh, uh, you know, t-shirts on the internet with a message that says, uh, you know, uh, tree, rope, rope, rope tree journalist, rope yep. tree journalist, some That's assembly exactly required, right. you know, you're, you're, you're talking about a climate in which it's just not safe to, um, it to be, it's not as safe to be a journalist as it should be. And part of that is because we've just, you know, endured uh, a period of time where the president was, you know, castigating uh, journalists as, as enemies of the people and, 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 and dismissing, you know, journalism, free and independent journalism as fake news. So I think, you know, culturally, Americans need to pay attention to what's going on around them and to realize that this can happen, you know, um, in a way that, you know, in a, in, at a speed that they, you know, they never would have thought possible. Is there an Elijah Lovejoy of today? Well, I think that anybody who um, anybody who's out there who is um, practicing journalism in an honest way and who is you know speaking truth to power and 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 writing the, the stories that need to be written um, is is acting in the spirit of Elijah Lovejoy. And there are many, 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 many um, uh, journalists who are doing that. And, um, and I, 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 I'm very proud to be a journalist and I'm proud of those who continue to, to carry on the, that sort of tradition. Ken Ellingwood, the author of First to Fall, Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery. Thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Evan. Certainly check out that book and his Twitter feed, which is at Ken Ellingwood. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page. To ask your support in keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash History. We just made a donation from your contributions to Reach Out and Read, a program that makes books a part of the pediatric healthcare process. And we will make more of those donations. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.